TED Audio Collective. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary for everyone. Manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Look at yourself and evaluate yourself and say, listen, these are the things that I don't want to live with. People have to understand that whatever they're, whatever they're feeling, there's always a way out. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, designer James Victoria talks about leading a creative life. If we look at our childhood, you've done the work already. We're born wildly creative. We don't need to develop it. We don't need to. We just need to recall it. Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsors, then with the interview. I'd like to thank two of the patrons that help make Design Matters possible. Is your team designing an app from scratch? Rethinking the look and feel of your brand? Maybe taking on something massive like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way, passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD. Now, for free, with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. 
Wix.com puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? The things that made you weird as a kid make you great today. You become who you pretend to be. Freedom is something you take. Kill your phone. Stop deprecating all over yourself. Love something other than your selfie. No, that's not your id talking. That's James Victoria. Actually, those are the titles of just a few of the subchapters in Victoria's new book, Feck Perfection, Dangerous Ideas on the Business of Life. James first got famous for his in-your-face, politically arresting design work. Now he's out to shock us with in-your-face talk about our creative lives. James Victoria, welcome back to Design Matters. Darling, it is great to be here. This is the third time you've been on Design Matters. We had a full-on interview in 2010, and you were part of one of the, I think, original Bad Boys of Design series that I did in Design Matters 1.0. Do you remember wow. that? Wow. Yeah. Now, well, now that you say it, yes, I do. <laughs> so thank you for coming back to talk mm-hmm. about and your I've, new and book. And I've just gotten badder, so it's great. <laughs> so I found something that astonished me. You made your debut as a fashion icon in the men's style (laughs) section of the New York Times in 1989. Wow, you did homework. You were photographed with your Yamaha in an article about professionals who ride motorcycles to their offices in Manhattan. Yes. I had no idea you were such a fashionista back then. Yes, I remember that. That was that was that was very serendipitous. I just pulled up to my parking spot at Columbus Circle and there was a photographer there and they said, "Hey, mate, when we take your picture?" And I was like, "Uh, Sure. And was the man wearing a blue jacket? No, it was not Bill. <laughs> I wish. I wish it was Bill. I knew Bill at the time. Yeah. He, he was Bill a, Cunningham. He, Bill Cunningham was a um, I, my stu- the studio that I worked out of was in Paul Bacon's studio and it was on the eleventh floor of Carnegie Hall, which is where Bill came out of. Yes, but uh, yeah, that was a that was a wild little thing. You were born in 1962 in Mountain Home, Idaho, but you grew up in upstate New York. When and why did your family leave Idaho? Idaho, we were there because it was a military base. My father was in the military, a lifelong military. Um, by the time I was five, I'd lived in five different places. And on my fifth birthday, literally, we moved to Plattsburgh, New York, because uh, my father was stationed there. And just before that, my mother, to tell you where I come from, my mother in a Dodge Dart station wagon moved three kids across the country twice. 
because she was a military wife and that's what you did. And my father was, until I was 11 years old, my father was basically stationed six months, nine months at a time someplace. What did he do in the military? He was a, uh, a boom operator for a KC-135 refueling airplane. So he flew over Vietnam and refueled fighter jets. Wow. Yeah. Another interesting tidbit that I discovered about you, James, is it true that your middle name is Brain? <laughs> it is true that my middle name is Brain. <laughs> my uh, father wanted uh, my first name to be James, and my mother wanted my first name to be Brian. My mother is a good Irish Catholic, and my father was uh, um, Italian. But the military hospital in Mountain Home, Idaho, was not as hip as possibly some others, and it was basically a typo. So, so my middle name is Brain. And you know what? It makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. So have you ever used the correct spelling, or do you just go by James Brain, Victoria? Uh, uh, yeah, I unfortunately legally have to use the correct one because nobody would really, you know, I'm just not interested. I get frisked enough at airports and looked at enough that I don't need that extra. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Reflecting on your teaching practice today, you've said, I want people to be like five-year-olds and ask why, 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 because that's important. Were you, as a five-year-old, constantly asking why? You bring up something really interesting. Um, yes. And as a five-year-old... I was uh, creative. And one of my memories is that I was always asking why. I was always um, making up song lyrics and puns and full of jokes and drawing on everything. And I was called creative. And I knew at the time that it was not a compliment. Why? Because creativity disrupts. Right? Creativity, our, our job is to question, is to ask why. Why does it have to be like that? Why can't we turn it upside down? Why does it have to be blue? Why does it, you know? So as a child, that's the process. And with the first line of, 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 of the new book says, says we're all born wildly creative. But some of us just forgot. And the reason we forget is because it's really difficult to carry that why through life. It's difficult to, to be the disruptor. It's difficult to ask the questions all the time because, you know, you'll, you'll, more often than not, you'll get shot down. Did you feel that there was any sense at that time of your life to discourage your creativity? Oh, heck yeah. In what way? Um, in that, you know, in that my creativity wasn't condoned at home or school. And I think, I think, you know, when I talk about this with, with, with other people, they just kind of roll their eyes and go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they totally remember, you know, being called weird, being, be, being odd because they liked to dress a certain way or be, you know, you know, I think when you're, I think between five and seven is when it starts, you know, when kids notice differences in other kids. You know, to be weird and to be creative, it, it can be a target if you're not in the right atmosphere. But yet you persevered. But yet it was, it was a drum that was so goddamn loud that I just couldn't, I couldn't walk away from it. I couldn't not listen to it. Um, and it wasn't like, you know, part of it was, part of it was growing up on the military base. Because we all knew that, I mean, there are two things that I've learned in the military. And I've, I've said this more than once. Two things that, I've, that I love that I learned in the military. And one is great posture, right? Shoulders back. Chest out, chin up. The other thing is to question authority. 
Especially, I, I, I'm surprised at the second one. Oh no, no, no! If you were if you were what we call a military brat, you know, a kid growing up on the, uh, especially during during Vietnam, you learned to question authority, and that was the 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 small bit of I don't know juvenile anarchy that I that I was raised in, um, and I hold it dear. It's important to me. But you were shy growing up, I understand. You were also an altar boy. I was an altar boy. Well, you a know, shy here, altar boy well, is not how I would have envisioned your childhood, but, James. But listen to this. Listen to, listen to this, where these come from. The shyness is because I was told I was shy. Oh. I was told I was shy by authority. My father used to introduce me as that. I'm the youngest of three. I have two older sisters. I'm the youngest of three. I was introduced as, this is Jimmy, he's my shy one. And I'm like, in my in my gut, I'm like, I'm not fucking shy. Who's, wait, who's he talking about? And right? When, but, when did you go from Jimmy to James? I've yeah. never called you Jimmy, and no. I've known you for 20 well, I, years. I moved, when I moved to New York, I became James. Okay. When I was 19, I became James. I was like, bonk. No, no Jim. No Jim. No Jimmy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and the altar boy was being brought up in a you know Catholic upbringing and doing everything right. So it was altar boy. It was Catholic school. It was you know Catholic school all the way through. And just doing, towing the line, doing what I was supposed to do. You talk a lot about the notion of the things that made you weird as a kid make you great as an adult. Mm -hmm. You you have a, a really wonderful poster with that statement on it. What made you weird as a kid? Was it just being a shy creative it was youngest the, child. the asking, it was the youngest child. The youngest child of two older sisters was great because I was left alone a lot. You know, my sister didn't really want to, you know, mess with me. And so my mom, even today, she says she would come home because my parents both worked and they were both basically gone a lot. So I raised myself and I was left alone a lot. So I have a, I have a wonderful grasp of solitude. I've never been much of a team player, but my mother would come home from work and she would think I have two other friends with me upstairs because of all the voices and all the playing and all the you know, so I really learned to entertain myself. And that you know, that's basically what I do as a creative professional now. All those the the puns, the the word you mentioned some of the titles when we were talking of the titles of the chapters. I read through the chapters of the titles and I'm and I go <laughs> That's some funny shit. That's it's pretty good. It's, <laughs> it's good pretty. Gotta say, it's pretty work. good. Yeah. It's pretty good. It's, you know, um, so those are the things that you know. Just that that simple play, and I think you know when I push others, they can look back at their lives and see the things that they did. Whether it was let's take let's take my um, my beautiful wife Laura for example. For a living right now, what she does is she runs a workshop every week where she teaches women to dance, teaches women to be comfortable basically dancing in their underwear to, in order to own their sexuality and own who they are and to open their bodies and open their hearts. And when pressed... I say, Laura, so, you know, what'd you do when you were a kid? And what, you know, she'll, she'll list a bunch of things. But she said, you know what I, you know what I really remember? I remember I loved dancing in my underwear. <laughs> and that's just, you know, that's how it works. You know, I mean, if you take any professional actor or athlete or chef or whatever, and you, you, you bring them back to their, their, their origin story, they'll say, when I was a kid, my father and I in the backyard until the lights went out, like throwing the ball back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You know, um, one of my mentors is a guy named Gary Danko. Gary Danko, who when I was 19, he was the chef at a restaurant that I um, was a waiter at. And I'd been, I was fired twice 
from this. You know, it's just I was in upstate New York, and, and you know, I was I was angry, and I didn't know what to do. And uh, Gary was the one who said, "Jimmy, <laughs> again." He said, "Go to New York." Right. And Gary is now Gary Danko. It's a two star Michelin restaurant in San Francisco. You know, one of these places you can't get into. And Gary's origin story is hilarious. He said when he was a kid, his mom woke up one night and there was all this noise in the kitchen and she goes down and he's rifling through. He's like seven, six, and he's rifling through all the pots and the pans and he's naked except he has her apron on. And she said, Gary, what are you doing? And he said, I'm making a cake, Mommy. And Gary says, at that moment, my mother knew two things about me. (laughs) What were they? That he was going to be a chef and that he was wildly gay, you know? And he's amazed. He is the most amazing man I've, you know, he's still a creative mentor of mine. And he's a a delight and a charm and super smart. And I owe a huge part of my career to him. You said that in your hometown there were two stable occupations, nurse and prison guard. But I understand that when you were a kid, it was apparent very early on that you were either going to be a graphic designer or a (laughs) cross-dresser. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on both of those. Yes. Um, When I was a kid, my mother used to take me shopping. And I was, again, I was six or seven and I was small enough that when we'd go into the dress stores that I could walk underneath all the dresses, right? Uh, underneath all the racks. And what I would do is I would collect the tags. I just pull the tags off of the clothes. And we would be leaving the store and my mother would look down and I would have a handful of tags in my paw, right? And she'd look down and she'd go, Oh, Jimmy. <laughs> but that is the beginning of, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about the 10,000 hours. Yes. My 10,000 hours started when I was five, baby. I've done more than, you know, and we all have. We've all put in that time. If we look back, if we look at our childhood, you've done the work already. You know, we're born wildly creative. We don't need to develop it. We don't need to. We just need to recall it. You know, what I do now is I tell people, listen, I can't tell. I'm not here to tell you anything. I'm here to remind you. That that's who you are. So like this whole kind of thing about like <clears throat> women's clothing and women's dresses and those tags and things. It it kind of has a deep instilled memory in me, and I and I and I, and it's really important. You took Gary's advice. You ended up going to New York. Yes. You moved to New York with three hundred dollars in your pocket. But prior to that, you did have a brief college experience in your hometown. Yes. Wherein you were asked to leave the yes. school. So leave the school or thrown out of the school? I was thrown out. I got a (laughs) 0.04 cube. Here's a funny thing that no one knows. Coming straight out of high school, you know, you finish high school and there's a a little celebration where they tout everybody up on stage and they give them their diploma and they pat you on the back. And I worked hard to get into the military academy. And I was an alternate for the Air Force Academy, but it didn't come through. And I didn't apply to other schools. So... When it came time for that little celebration, that little ceremony, um, I didn't want a blank next to my name because all my friends were going to Dartmouth and West Point. Like I was with some fancy guys, right? <laughs> I didn't want a blank. So it literally it said, James, you know, Jim Victoria is uh, pursuing a career as a stand-up comedian. 
<laughs> wow. How, and oddly how, enough, how serendipitous. oddly enough, yeah. to a certain degree, that's what I do for a living. Absolutely. Um, so what was the question? <laughs> well, I, essentially, what what how were you asked to leave? Ah, but that yes, was the question. Yes. Well, I, yeah, so, were... so I didn't get into the, the Air Force Academy, but I could get into my the State University in my hometown late. There was one class that about Shakespeare that just moved me, and I was just like that. It's it. Uh, we did an entire semester on Hamlet and an entire semester on Romeo and Juliet. It was so brilliant. But after the year, um, I was waiting tables with with Gary uh, at Gary's place. I was um, working as a ski patrol during the weekends, and I was uh, basically super unhappy at university and sleeping and crying in my car between classes. Because I just didn't know... You were living in your car at that point. Pretty much. And I just didn't know kind of where to go. I didn't know... I knew I was extra furniture at home. You know, 18 years old, kind of clumsy, and just wanted to, you know, chase a skirt and be out late. Um, so I was super lost, and... Uh, it was. It was. A, it was. A, I think. I think a lot of people have that kind of painful point where they're like, "I don't know what to do," and that's when Gary said, "You know, go to New York." And that's so I. I like. I think after he said, it, I think I left immediately. But the school, yes, the school basically helped because they 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 gave me a super low grade in um, and and um, and I'm out of there. You've said that you did design the easy way. You came to New York. Oh, yeah. If you were really good, you could do it from yeah. wherever. Yeah, I think so. Do you so. still think that? I, I think that. I, I, well, I think that more now. Why? Why with the that? internet. With the internet, more now because you can get seen. Um, yeah, I mean, it, New York is where the stuff is, man. New York's where it's happening. It's like, you know, it's like, uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen had to, you know, he couldn't stay in New Jersey and become a musician. He had to come to New York. That's where the action was. Or go to L.A., right? Um, that's just how it works. Um, but I thought at that time, and I and I think more so now, and I think one of the reasons why I say that is because I want to help those people who can't get to, you know, I think the, the, there's there's amazing talent all over the world, and it's not just here. And you don't have to be here, but what you have to do is is be brave enough to get it out into the world and in, in any way possible. You then enrolled at the School of Visual Arts, where you would ironically later teach. And when I first interviewed you, the very first interview, you recalled being told by a professor that you should either be a ski instructor or an accountant yeah. instead of a designer yeah. or an artist. And I still cannot believe, all these years later, I still cannot believe a teacher would say something like that to anyone, let alone well, you. Well, yeah. I, I Even was, if you were talentless. <laughs> I was talentless. I had it. In, I had, it was in me. But I didn't know how to get it. But I didn't know that's it his was. job to help you find it, not discourage nah, you. And nah, not this guy. <laughs> um, yeah, it was. And and again, Debbie, I want to write a book about failure because my life is full of it. I think anybody, any you know, anybody's life is full of it. But it all happened at the right time and for the right reason. Because he asked me to leave because I was a crappy student. I really was. And, you know, you said I've taught. I taught at SVA for almost 20 years. And I yeah. wanted to be the teacher that people came to. I wanted to be the teacher that I needed at the time, the guy who set fires in class, literally set fires in class. Um, and wait, when I, wait. So when you say literally? Literally. So, like so. fires, like firecrackers, like, yes. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that uh, yeah, SVA condoned that no, kind they, of behavior. They, they certainly do not. <laughs> I found out later. Um, but even then, Richard Wilde had to say, listen, you know, to get you to teach, I had to show your record. 
And it took three tries because, you know. You got thrown out of SVA. The, the boss was like, what? No, we can't let him teach here. He's, he doesn't have the grades, right? So did you fail out of SVA? Richard Wilde, who's a genius and a dear pal of mine, gave me a C. So that was pretty bad. And he's generous. <laughs> so fail out, I don't know. But, you know, this one guy asked me to, uh, you know, said, suggested I be, do some other career. And I just took his advice and left. And it was funny because I called, dad, I called my dad and I said, hey, uh, so like, um, by the way. <laughs> you know, nothing good comes after that ever. Yeah. I said, you know, by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, drop out of school. And my father said, but. I thought you wanted to be a fancy art director with your name on the door. And I said, oh, no, 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 I'm going to have that. <laughs> I'm just not going to finish school. So the day after you were asked to leave art school, you started your career. You're 21 years old. Mm-hmm. And you stated that you were ill-equipped, unqualified, and unsure of yourself. Great you place to ready, be. You weren't ready, but you moved forward anyway. Great place to be. What gave you the courage back then? I can see you now looking back on that and saying great place to be. But what gave you the sense with all of this rejection and failure that you knew you wanted to do it anyway? Um, desperation. Mm. That's always such a good motivator. It's a great motivator. Fire under your ass. Desperation and I was born for this job, literally. And I've just done a very good job at trying to pay attention. I get derailed sometimes. I become unconscious sometimes. But I was born to do this. And my career path has always been fairly fairly clear. It's like, like anybody else. It's difficult to listen to that. It's difficult to, to, to listen when a change is going to come. And you're like, wait, but what, huh? You know? And I wanted it. You know, and I, when, I was, when I was a student at SVA, people who I was, you know, classmates were, in, were interning at Milton Glazer's or at, um, at, uh, with Ivan Shermayev or something. I didn't even know how to pronounce those guys' names. And I thought, I am in deep. But... What I had over those guys is I just, I wanted it. I wanted it so much more than they did. You eventually got an apprenticeship with the legendary Paul Bacon, who you dubbed your other father. And (laughs) you've said that he taught you everything from art to dirty jokes and left you with a thirst for the craft. He passed away in 2015. And looking back in retrospect, what was the greatest lesson he left you with? Uh, You know, I learned the good and the bad from Paul. I learned um, the bad being, you know, how not to do your business. The good was, so he was a jazz aficionado and he's a, he was in a jazz band and he loved music and he loved art and photography and he was just a, a wealth of information on a number of sources and uh, auto racing and wine and all of those were part and parcel of his work. I mean, they all played a role in his life and in his work. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I don't have to just become myopic and learn everything about, you know, grids and color theory and the Bauhaus and Herbert Bayer and, you know, and, and you know, to become a designer. There were other things that made you interesting, other things that made you creative, other things that, that add, a, add a spice or a flavor to, to your work. What are a few of those things? 
jazz and music and you know okay. I mean for me it's like you yeah. know rubber tires anything that races I you know I put it in the work and here's the funny thing about what uh, something else I learned from Paul Bacon so Paul um, if no one knows Paul he did basically all of Joseph Heller's covers and all of Kurt Vonnegut covers and all of James Clavell and all of Robert Ludlum and and he's working on Robert Ludlum you know one of the born things and it's big title big author and in the middle is a little three inch circle in all of them just had a little three inch circle and on that circle is a the White House and the lawn and there's helicopters in the air and there's a little guy running across it and he's carrying a, a rifle. All done with gouache and a, pen, and, a, and, a, and a brush that's got like three hairs on it. Just exquisite. And he never had a spot of paint on him. Completely impeccable. An amazing, amazing guy. The phone call comes from the editor of that book and says, Paul, what you've got there is the little guy, looks like he has a garand and in the book, Technically, it's an AK, and can you fix it? Which meant he had to redo the entire thing. And I, at that moment, never wanted that criticism in my life. And at that moment, I became an abstract expressionist. I never wanted to do something so realistic that someone could pick on that little detail and make me go backwards and have to redraw it. Yeah, that's so interesting. I had a very similar conversation about things like that with... Barry Blitt and Christoph Niemann, who do so many really detailed things. I remember Christoph was talking about how he would provide as close to a realistic sketch as possible because if he doesn't and it ends up getting approved with a not-so-detailed yes. sketch, he's wasted all that time. Yes, and Paul... So you have that, there's that sort of balance in between. And Paul Sayre does the opposite. He sends the most loose thing, in, you know, that just with a, with a basically one-line, you know, it's a, a melting doctor underneath, you know? It's like... <laughs> and, and so he doesn't have to, you know, he, 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 he the low expectation, then he delivers high, and it's great. Now, when you were working with Paul, you designed your fair share of book covers and you also launched James Victory Inc. And you wanted to make work that was, quote, dangerous, but you were at that time stuck making book jackets that you described as not terribly dangerous. Yes. So how did you get to the dangerous work? I woke up one day and I realized that my portfolio was full of Paul Bacon. And that's how it happens. I mean, you know, you work with somebody, when you start out, you, you at someone's knee, literally, you, you know, you emulate. So I had a portfolio full of Paul Bacon. But I was also making major coin. I bought my first motorcycle cash. I was wearing silk suits. I, you know, I was making some money. Swanky. Yeah. And that cockiness led me to say, hey, wait a minute, I have my own sense of color, my own sense of humor, my own sense of timing, my own sense of proportion and shape. And, you know, I don't want to do the Paul Bacon thing. I want to do, you know, I gotta be me, right? So I started putting that in my work. And, woo, baby. <laughs> Kilfee City. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. I started living on Kilfees. I One time I had this amazing, uh, my, my very, very first boss, or, uh, creative director who I work with super regularly. He was my pimp. He was an amazing guy, and I love him dearly. His name was Joe Montebello over at HarperCollins or Harper Row. I forgot what it used to be. But he literally got so tired <laughs> of me bringing things that were just like, what? Right? The last time we worked together, he said, James, if... You don't bring me something that goes through. I will never work with you again. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. But, Debbie, what that did for me was it said, I've got to go find my clients. That's obviously not my client. So in 1992, 
you read an article about the 500th anniversary of Columbus discovering America. It prompted you to design your first poster titled Celebrate Columbus, reflecting on the death and destruction Columbus brought to the American Indians. And today, that poster is in the Museum of Modern Art. At the time, you said you had no idea what you were getting into when you used your rent money to print up and put up 1,500 of these posters around New York City. And as you've written, the one story I have never told about this period of my life was the eviction notices. Every few months, the doorbell would ring, and waiting downstairs was a man in a suit. You are served, was his only line as he handed me an eviction notice. These legal notices were proof of your conviction and the price you had to pay to make the posters. That takes balls. It's just the price you got to pay. You know, if you want to be a, um, um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fight fan. I like boxing. I like, you know, MMA stuff. Why? I don't know. I have a really hard time with violence. Yeah. Well, I do now. <laughs> we, we can talk <laughs> we'll about get that, to that later. Yes, we will. Um, but, and uh, you know, I, I watch these, these things and I, and I realize that I know the money they make which isn't great until you get to the top. And I'm like, wow, that's a, that's a heavy price. And it's, everything has a price. Everything has a price. And my creativity had a price. And it was that. And you know what? It wasn't, it wasn't like the mafia was coming to kill me. It was like I was getting some papers that said I owed money. You know? So what? So what? You know, debt somehow gets paid off. Everybody got paid off somehow. It worked. I'm not, you know... Um, uh, and again, that was part and parcel of this dangerous thing that I didn't know I was doing or didn't know I was living. It was just like part and parcel of of, of the game. These are the things I was going to do. N- ain't nobody asking me to do it. I'm just going to do it. Discussing your Columbus Day poster, you've said, for better or for worse, years ago, I kind of professionally shot myself in the foot in doing this poster with a dead Indian on it. I've said this before, that because of that poster and subsequent work, I'd gained a certain reputation. So, James, tell us about that reputation and also why for better or worse. For better, why the worse? For better or worse. For worse, let's start with that. For worse is that I was a commercial designer. Mm-hmm. And... Commercially, there ain't nobody out there interested in my opinion. You know, you want to be a successful commercial graphic designer, shut up and don't have an opinion, right? You don't put your political, social, cultural opinion into the work. There are very few clients that want that or will invite that. Completely understandable, right? So that's the worst. For better is that I now found a purpose, and that's important. And it wasn't – what was not important was how much I got paid for that purpose. What was not important was that that purpose was going to pay my rent. What I, do you consider this purpose to be? To create strong political statements, to create strong social cultural work, work that had meaning to people. The book jackets that I had done previously and the record CD covers, nobody gives a rat's ass about. But these things, people – it has meaning for people still. It has meaning for me still. And I, and I wanted to – I wanted to hold on to that. That was important. I'd, 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 it was what I moved to New York. To, I literally moved to New York to be a poster designer, and it took me a, a couple of years to kind of get there. But when I got it, I was like, you know, and for, 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 for young designers, 
and what we try to do when we have, you know, um, mid-career and we have workshops and stuff is we want to give them a taste of what they're capable of. And once you get a taste of what your creativity can do and the power of your voice, you don't want to let go. Here's a little known fact. And I, I actually, this is so little known, it might not actually be, be true. <laughs> well, it might not be you if there is another James Victoria out there, which I don't know that there is. But did you win an Emmy in 1992? Yes. Ah, you did. Yes. You won an Emmy. Yeah. Um, it was for the Hartford, Connecticut Channel 30's holiday-related station identification spot. Yes. What was the spot? And why don't you ever sing it's, the it's Emmy, Emmy Emmy winning? Award? Well, because it's not like I was on, you know, doing daytime TV. It was a it re- still counts. regional. It's it still a, counts. Hey, hey, you know what? It's hey, the same trophy. Hey, if I had an Emmy, trophy. it would be the first thing anybody knew about me. The Emmy Award-winning Debbie Millman. It's that the would same be it. trophy. I'll tell you what. It's that, it's that you know, Nike throwing a basketball. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about, so 1992 was a big year. I mean, talk about the sublime and the ridiculous. Oh, yeah, no. You do when the I was Indian 30, poster and you win an yeah, Emmy. When I was 30, it was it was hot. It was, it was the, uh, things were popping and, and I was super hungry and horny and yeah, doing a lot of stuff. And I had a pal who ran that, who was a creative director at that television station and he was in town and he, he and his wife would come and, and stay with me and, you know, we'd go out hooching in New York and um, we'd sit at a bar and I would be, doodling and he'd say oh that's 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 pretty funny he says you know what that that would make a good station identification i'm like uh can we do it he says yeah so we just went uh sell animation you know one after another uh we did two i think uh halloween and a christmas and they were delightful and they ran them and bada bing bada boom you know, and you, got you know, a statue. and and I think that's how really good work wor- works when it's not serious. When you're when you're when you when you go, you know, the process for me still is like it goes like this. Hmm, you know, it would be really funny. <laughs> and then whatever you say next, just do it because it's gonna be really funny and it's gonna have meaning. Uh, so that's how that one worked. Now, was there a time in the '90s where you were? switching your focus to commercial work to try to make money or were you okay so tell me about what happened then girls oh totally so collaborate totally give me a little bit more than (laughs) this (laughs) you know it was like it was like um all of a sudden i was in a relationship and i needed to make ends meet i needed to be more i don't know i think the call of security and it's an interesting. It's an interesting time and an interesting question. And what happened was, I needed to. I thought I needed to kind of carry my financial weight a little bit more and not be such a maybe perhaps a uh, dilettante or I don't know, a, a anarchist. I don't know. Um, and I needed to, you know, take care of things. Had that work out for you? Not well. I mean, you uh, said d- that d- you know. Ultimately, what it ended up with was divorce, right? So, uh, not well because you you know when I and I've realized that you can't do things for 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 other people, even that. You've said that following the money almost always leads you to poor work. For me. For me. Okay. Uh, it has. From 1994 to 2014. You taught at the School of Visual Arts, which had previously the same school that had asked you to leave. Then, in 2016, you fully moved from New York City to 49 acres of land in the small town of Georgetown, Texas. And you said this about the decision. 
It was a decision made like all my professional decisions for life, capital L-I-F-E, and not money. What, James, in life was calling you to Texas? A couple of things. First, love. I, so I moved in, let's go a little bit backwards. I moved to New York when I was 19 and I had a couple dollars in my pocket and I, and I, and I, I had that, I had this work ethic for my dad. So I just kind of made shit happen. And, uh, the first thing I could buy for myself that was more than food was a pair of cowboy boots. <laughs> and, um, then on down the road, I needed a vehicle and I brought, I bought a four wheel drive F-150 pickup truck. And I have cowboy hats, and I listen to country western music, or you know, growing up. And you so, liked cowboys growing up, too. Uh, yeah, I like cowboys, and I have a gunslinger mustache, so I, you know, so um, there was that. I've always had an affinity, and I one of my dearest friends was this, is this amazing illustrator. He was like Texas Illustrator of the Year uh, a number of years ago. His name is Mark Burkhart, and we met when we were young hoodlums right out of school, and he was originally from Waco, and his wife was from Corpus. And they moved back to Austin early, and I started visiting them every year. So I've been going to Austin for 25 years. And then I met my wife now, who was from Austin. And in, by 2014, we'd had a baby. And it was – it just made sense. It just felt that it was time to kind of um, – one, that the in-laws were close by. So we had, you know – so family and life and love. Um, and – Here's the other thing. Here's the what I found was the more important thing. To go back to dangerous. I'm always willing to put myself in a corner. I'm always willing to like try something new and change. And I knew that moving to Texas was not I didn't move to Austin. People were like, "Hey, how do you like Austin?" I'm like, "I'm not in Austin. I'm on rural you know, we're seven miles to the closest bar, you know, which is weird for me. <laughs> Can't ride a bike. <laughs> so uh, what I did and what my wife did essentially as well was we forced ourselves to m- figure out how to make a living by our creativity. You know, we when you move out of, out of the city, clients think that you're dead or not interested or too expensive or this or that, right? So um, commercially, I have a few clients who I, who I, who I hold on to. Uh, but financially, everything else is, 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 is me as the client and me trying to figure out how to get paid for my creativity. It's incredible. I mean, you're on Patreon, you have subscribers, and they get things like your Dangerous Ideas video series, your own podcast, advanced articles and book excerpts, mm-hmm. sketches, a monthly live Q&A series. I mean, it's incredible that we, you've created this this empire. And all of it is just things that I enjoy doing. You know, and the funny thing is I keep getting asked, like, oh, my God, you're, you know, why is your audience so small? And I'm like, you know what? I don't even think about it. But they're rabid. Oh, no, they're amazing. And they're, and you know what? And they're the people who want change. They're the people who want change in their life. And that's important. In 2010, you released your first book, Victory or Who Died and Made You Boss. Good book. Which has been, and yes, and gorgeously designed by Paul Sayre. Mr. Sayre. Uh, it has been aptly described as both a monograph and a manifesto. And we discussed it extensively in 2010. But I'd like to mention a couple of books that followed. Uh, there was the parody In and Out with Dick and Jane, 
which you made with Ross McDonald, introducing an alternate world for Dick and Jane laden with sex, drugs, and all the other yeah, spoils of the stuff. modern world. Funny stuff. Uh, there was also your book, Lust, a traveling art journal of graphic design, which examined what designers would make given complete freedom. Now I'd like to talk with you about your brand new book, Feck Perfection. Craziest title in the world, worst title in the world. Hard to say, hard to write. Every time I type it, I type it wrong. But again, these are the places I'm willing to go. You describe the book in the introduction. You say, Feck Perfection is a collection of the lessons you've learned, developed, and followed throughout your career. They come from psychology, sociology, philosophy, and the crazy things your mom said that have all turned out to be true. And you go on to say that it is not your intention to be inspirational or make you feel good, but to challenge and I was I was really interested when you first asked me to read the book. I was a little bit worried because I thought James is not like a motivational do-gooder. So it is a bit of a challenge. How did but it also it doesn't make you feel bad. So how did you how did you do that? How did you create that sort of sense of urgency with also a sense of possibility? I don't believe that I was born to be an optimist. I'm not. I want to be. I am not the happy-go-lucky guy that I wish I was. It takes a lot to float my boat. And these are things that, that, these are lessons that I need to remind myself of constantly. Um, one, of the, one of the alternate titles for this book was um, Resolutely Difficult Advice. <laughs> because it is difficult advice because it's super hard to follow, you know? It feels a bit high altitude. I don't know if I could really do this. I don't know how somebody can actually do this, but yet it seems doable because you're doing it. Yeah. And I think there's a level of um, levity and um, elbow room that we throw in there as well and say, you know, take, you know, Maimonides, for example. Where I was born, that the, hospital. <laughs> the hospital. Well, I'm talking about the the, the philosopher. The, the philosopher. So, you know, the he wrote the Talmudic laws for the Jews and for the Jewish faith. And there's a wonderful story where some farmer comes to Maimonides and says, listen, I've got family. I've got this. I'm like, I, I can't. I can't follow all these. And Maimonides says, pick five. Pick three. But just do it. Just follow it. You know, so it's not about being perfect or perfect or whatever. It's not about being perfect. It's about it's about being conscious of your actions, being conscious of your these default habits. Because I see them. I saw them, especially teaching, you know, through in, in SVA. And I see them in me as a parent when I fall into that. When I become weak, I'm like, ah, ha, ha, James. That's, you know. What, how do you define weak? When you become, you know, the easiest thing is when you become tired or hungry. And all of a sudden you just, you just revert to be your, mm. you know, your infantile, you know, baby James. Hangry. Yeah. Yeah. That's a default. You write that we all have dragons that need to be faced to get to the creative rewards and that every morning yours curls around your neck and whispers, failure, failure, failure <laughs> in your ear. Were you merely illustrating a point in the book, or is that really true? Do you really have that dragon on your shoulder? I, um, I wake up very early. I wake up at like 4.35 every morning, and it's just because my body does it. It's just like I, I've always have. I think it's because my dad always woke up very early. And uh, I found that if I don't 
get up out of bed and start moving, if I'm laying there, all of a sudden, all of my, my, my list, my to-do, and my, oh, my God, that's late, and oh, my God, this, and then, you know, financial. And so, yeah, so I just start thinking too much. All these things come. What do you do with all that fear? I take a deep breath and put my shoulders back, and I, I get to work. I get to work. You know, it's funny because in writing this book, my, my process was uh, 4.30, out on the porch with a quilt on my lap and the light of the laptop. And I had a little camping coffee maker so I didn't, you know, disturb anybody in the house. And I'm writing these stories and trying to tell these truths about myself. And, oh, my gosh, Debbie, the, the, the voices, the voices oh. in my head, you know, you, are you really? You're going you're gonna to write about that? Or, or the designers that I look up to, like, hey, what, well, this isn't a design book, right? right. The, the criticism about James Victoria being a designer, and he, well, here he is, he's not making a design book, you know? It, it's, well, it's, it's life real. lessons it's real. that help you design a life. Uh, it, uh, about, yeah, uh, about living a creative life, yes. And, and, and how hard it is, because I know how hard it is to live a creative life. I mean, that's, that's the gist of the whole book. It's like, yes, the things that made you weird, but how do you hold on to those? I want to talk with you about success because despite all the fears, despite all the rejection and failure, you've been very successful. But you state the following about success. Success goes to those who keep moving, to those who can practice, make mistakes, fail, and still progress. Like exercise for muscles, the more you learn, the more you develop, and the stronger your skills become. Success is about action. Action beats worry. Action beats thinking. Action always wins. Do you feel successful? You know, I, I don't like that question because I don't, I don't have um, a, um, a, a rate, a, um, a scale. A benchmark. Of yeah. success. I am successful in that... Um, for example, I'm here with you. I'm successful in that, you know, that I that that people follow me, uh, that I have a, a a wonderful wife and a happy marriage. But the what I basically always say when people say, "Hey, you know, you're you're successful," I say, "Listen, the only rate that I know of success is that I'm I'm a I'm, I think I'm a good dad, and that's kind of important to me. Um, you know, if you rate me by money or by that kind of stuff, you know, don't even." <laughs> In my interview with Beth Comstock last year, she stated, if failure is not an option, then neither is success. And I thought you'd like that. Hmm, that's groovy. Yeah. Let's talk about what happened at the very end of 2018. Uh, December 14th, you were riding your motor, your mountain bike. You were a couple of miles from home. You ended up having quite a terrible accident. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about what happened. Yeah, I have... Um, I have uh, Two motorcycles, and I love um, anything with rubber tires and engines. And so I was out on one of them, a trials bike, which is a, a funny-looking bike that has, doesn't have a seat. And you stand up, and you basically use these lighter vehicles with super torque, and you ride up and over things that you're not supposed to be able to ride up and over. And there's an area on the property that has a little stream running through it, and it's rocky and wet, and it goes up and down. And it's a, a skill developer. And I was out... Uh, late December and riding on this thing and I don't know what happened. I think I blipped, which is mean you hit the 
the throttle a little bit much. And this particular bike was an electric bike, so it doesn't have a clutch to grab onto. I think I blipped, and I think the bike jumped out from, you know, I was going uphill, and it jumped out from underneath me. And there was nothing for my feet to connect with behind. And I fell down onto what I think of as my my right side into the bottom of this rocky ravine. And I, the only thing I remember was this loud crack of like if you took a, um, a bunch of celery in your hand and just went. <coughs> I don't know if I blacked out or not, but I kind of like, <coughs> like, out, like out, just like out of the movies, like just like <coughs> woke up and I was in this ravine and the pain rushed through my body and I realized I had some breakage. And I realized I didn't have my phone, and I realized I had to walk all the way back to the house, and there was nobody at the house, so I had to call, um, you know, the the call my wife and the um, the um, EMT, and uh, realized when we got to the ICU, I was in the ICU for a couple of days, and it was um, uh, ten broken ribs, a broken collarbone, and a partially dislodged uh, lung. So I basically busted, you know, half of my upper body. And um, as I see it now, it's just like everything else. It happened at the right time and for the right reason. And as my wife says, we had come to a point in our lives and our professional experiences where she says, listen, your heart needed to grow and your body needed to make way. And I totally believe that. And what I do is now is I'm I'm writing on this because I'm going to be speaking a lot in 2019. I'm going to be speaking about this book, and this is what I'm going to talk about, uh, the pain. Because the, the massive amount of pain I had and the, what I call cruising pain now, I have, you know, I, have, I carry pain all the time right now. And I'm in rehab, and I'm taking care of it, and it's going to be fine. But what it makes me realize is that if I don't take care of this pain, if I don't grow from this process and become bigger and stronger because of it, then I'm an idiot. And then the pain was is just hurt. And for my audience, I have to point out that they are carrying cruising pain. They have, you know, everything from my book. They have an inability to ask for what they're worth. They're possibly in a relationship that chafes. They're possibly in a body that they didn't plan for. They're possibly in a job that where they feel they're kind of stuck right? If I don't take care of my physical pain, I will end up um, bent with less flexibility in my life. And I will become professionally and personally less dangerous and more fearful. And my life will get smaller and smaller every day or every year. And if my audience doesn't understand that this pain that they're carrying, if they do not do the same and take care of it, they will be bent and become more fearful and their life will get smaller and smaller. It's just, it's just the work and it's just the ability to kind of look at yourself and evaluate yourself and say, listen, these are the things that I don't want to live with and this is the way that I can get out of it. There is always a, you know, in the, in the fight game, there's always an exit. No matter what hold you're in, there's always a way out. And it's the same thing for this. It's like people have to understand that whatever they're, whatever they're feeling, there's always a way out. I want to ask you one more question, and it comes from knowing about this horrific accident and now watching you through the aftermath as you launch on a book tour for a remarkable book. 
you write in the book that your purpose on this planet isn't to become a millionaire, to build a 401k, or even get a good job. Your purpose is to figure out who or what you are. And so, James, how would you describe who you are now, and where do you anticipate, every, given everything that's happened, especially in the last half year, where you'll go next? That's an excellent question, and one I've one I've, I've been thinking about a lot because it's you know uh, the there's a there's a chapter in this book called uh, I'm a fake. I know. And the this this charlatanism. It's the one I read first. Yeah, this charlatanism, of course. <laughs> like, this, ooh, he this, feels I, that way too. This this, uh, this charlatanism, this this feeling of being a fake, um, affects me uh, often because it's like I have a reputation as a commercial designer. And I'm a pretty good one, meaning I can get into the Museum of Modern Art and the Stedelijk Museum and the, the Louvre and all these other places. And, but I realize I'm a much better teacher. Mm. And my purpose now is to serve others because that's the greatest goal that you can have as a human being is to serve others. I have had a wonderful career and a relatively happy career. And I've been able to see the power of my voice and see what happens when I get really my work out there un- unadulterated. And I want others to have that because I know how difficult it is to be creative. And I talk to mid-career people who, you know, have everything going for them. They got the job and the 401k and the family and the this. And, and they literally say, why do I cry in my car on the way home? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's that cruising pain. It's that thing. So I want to serve others. I came up, I thought of this thing the other day. I was, I was talking to my wife the other day and I said, you know what? I want to be Moses for creative people. Aww. I want to set them free. Nice. I like this. And I don't give a fuck what that sounds like to people. I don't care. That's my purpose now is, 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 is to help others. And if I get to make groovy stuff in the process, then so much the better. James, thank you so much for joining me again today on Design Matters. And thank you for bringing your dangerous ideas to life. Your remarkable new book is called Feck, Perfection, Dangerous Ideas on the Business of Life. You can find out more about the book at feckperfection.com. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Darling, I love you. I love you too, James. <laughs> Woo! For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com.